Welcome back to What Do You Make of This? I'm Sean Hansen from Saunders College Business at Rochester Institute of Technology in Rochester, New York. And I'm Corey Gall, coming to you from Sydney, Australia, from the University of Sydney Business School. Welcome back, Uri. Hello, so Sean. I, dis- I, I realize now uh, I keep doing the uh, the welcomes and the intros, but you could start taking that over if you want, or we could we could alternate back and forth. Yeah, I think your your voice has a certain gravitas which might lax. But yes, interesting. We, we- interesting. So you may recall from a previous discussion, uh, or the the listeners <laughs> may recall from a previous discussion that I um, I said that. I commented on my own uh, size that I'm overweight, that I'm heavy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that occurred to me after that discussion was, do you think you can hear weight in a person's voice? I think with I, you. I mean, surely you can, right? I think with you, is that, that, yeah, there's a strong correlation between the, how shall I put it? The richness, <laughs> the richness of your voice and the, and the girth of your stature. I was thinking about this because I'm pretty sure no one has ever listened to Biggie Smalls and thought, yeah, he's probably about a buck 70. So yeah, yeah. who's Biggie Small for, for our okay. non-American okay. listeners? Okay. Uh, I don't think it's just the American listeners who would know who Biggie Smalls is. The, uh, he, over, was a, over he was 20s. a rapper, also right. referred to as the Notorious B.I.G. He was a, a rapper shot and killed back in the 90s. Seemingly in retaliation for Tupac Shakur's killing. At any rate, if you listen to his music, you can't possibly miss the fact that the man was heavy. Okay. Based on his voice. I recall you presenting at a conference. It must have been 10 years ago, perhaps a bit longer. And you were standing at the podium. And for whatever reason, I forget the specifics, but you, you made a comment about the girth of your body. And you reassure you reassure people that they shouldn't be concerned that you might seem to be like an angry person, uh, but that you're actually quite cuddly. Now everyone's going to think that I'm morbidly obese. I'm just, uh, you know, <laughs> no, you're, you're just very tall. Uh, well, I'm tall and uh, carry too much weight. But um, what kind of a weird ass thing is that to say at a conference? What was wrong with me? That had like I could just I'm just visualizing how people had to react and i can i i can see in my mind's eye the looks of mortification on people's faces well maybe you, maybe you had spotted something in the audience like a, a sense of discomfort that something bad might be coming and you had to reassure them <laughs> <laughs> well that would not be the first time in my life that i see that look on people's faces <laughs> i'm trying to be sensitive to it yeah Interesting. So on this point of being sensitive to it this week we are going to be talking about the topic of Generation Z entering the workforce and the implications of Gen Z coming to our uh, our places of work and and integrating into the communities and offering their own talents to uh, to the organizations we populate and the the opportunities and challenges that creates for managers. So I, I got to ask you, uh, and the reason, by the way, the reason I say that's relevant to this topic of being sensitive to others is that is, I think, one of the clear insights we're going to see here is there there seems to be a an element of desire for um, for connection in this group. But go ahead, sorry. I, I got to ask you, you. You're the one who chose that topic. Uh, is it because yes. you have kids that are nearing that age? Oh uh, no, my kids are squarely in Gen Z. <laughs> Um, all of them? No. My, uh, the, oh, yeah. Yeah. All of them. Oh, okay. So, so was that why? So Generation Z just, um, no, 
I think also the fact that I do see people within Gen Z within the in the classroom context, our undergraduates right now would all be Gen Zers, and I just find it a little interesting. I should preface this though mm-hmm. with the fact that in general, I hate when people do like categories. I hate mm-hmm. categorization stuff. And so, but when I was a young boy, my parents read some book called the Enneagram, and it was like it's like a personality profile thing where they basically had a nine point profile or nine. Uh, nine profile framework for people's personalities. And I remember my parents during this, when they were reading this book being, you know, Oh, Sean is such a seven. Oh, uh, Danny's definitely a five, you know, this kind of stuff. And it drove me crazy. I hated it. Yeah. People so do that with different types of personality tests. The the Myers-Briggs is a famous one and people, <laughs> I always think it's really weird when people refer to them to themselves, not to other people. Mm-hmm. I'm such a, I forget the names of the types, but there's there I think, are four letters. I forget them as well. It, it's, it always strikes me as um, kind of funny and also probably an example of kind of self-reinforcing expectations. So once you do the survey and you, you realize that you fall within one bucket, you actually start acting like that bucket. Yeah, right, right. Um, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, but yes, Myers-Briggs is another one that I I, I hate that. Um, or even in, in the psychology literature, one of the very big streams of research focuses on what's called the big five personality dimensions. And these are sort of the, the five things that have shown up repeatedly through research to be quite robust but it drives me crazy when people you know put a lot of value in it because it just i don't know my own personal uh, feeling is that it sort of reduces the complexity of real life yeah i think that's the key point i i think we're not saying that these things are worthless or they don't say anything about people that that's worthwhile listening to but we're just saying i think that they tend to be reductive in nature and and um kind of push to the background stuff that doesn't necessarily gets pick, picked up by, I don't know how many survey questions um, the Myers-Briggs entails, but not that many. Right. Well, um, actually, I think Myers-Briggs is quite large. Is like it? In the neighborhood of 80. Yeah, it's well, It's been a while okay. since I did it. But 80 questions, I mean, you, you cannot expect them to um, encompass the whole complexity of a human being, right? Yeah. To tap into it. Yes. So, and and I think we start this discussion today with a similar caveat, right? We will talk about the characteristics that seem to have emerged around Gen Z and what implications it has for uh, management of organizations. But the caveat then is don't push it too far, right? Like everyone's an individual. And even though these generalizations might give us good insights for our own managerial practice, we should uh, not assume that any of the characteristics discussed here apply to any one individual. Yeah, I, I think in the U.S. Uh, alone, stereotyping essentially. <laughs> I think in the U.S. alone, we're talking about a group that's roughly um, seventy-five million people. I think something like that. Uh, yeah, it was about a quarter of the population. Yeah. Yeah. So we we certainly need to be cautious about overgeneralizing some of the things that we're saying, but at the same time, I think we need to be aware um, that there's probably in many instances, maybe in most instances. You know, when you look at people who um baby boomers and when you look at an 18-year-old, there are obvious differences in the way that they orient themselves towards life. Um, and, and a lot of these differences, uh, I think, have to do with what age people are and uh, the generation they belong to and, and the 
life circumstances that are shared by people of a certain generation, like the Vietnam War, right? Which yeah, is something absolutely. that's meant to be quite right. formative, formative experiences. Or 9-11, right? That do the, leave a mark. Yeah, the, these are the kind of things and large events that do, do shape people's outlook on life. But like you said, obviously, different people deal with, with life circumstances in different way. And despite the similarities, we need to um, keep in mind this caveat, which I think is um, is is valid. And by the way, I, I I was thinking about this yesterday when I was reading one of the papers for this. And I picked up, uh, I looked up a study that actually quantifies this caveat and finds significant differences in, in people's opinions and, and values, norms, and expectations toward their work life. Gen Zers across different um, countries. Um, they looked at China, Germany, the Netherlands, and Thailand, and they found significant differences between Gen Zers in all these countries in terms of what they expect out of their work life. So again, differences across countries or similarity within? Similarities within, but differences across. Interesting. So yeah, it it, it strengthens the point we made before, which is the the caveat that um, we need to keep in mind is is valid. Shall we, uh, shall we start looking at the research yes, and what it absolutely. says about how to most effectively manage Gen Zers in the workplace? Which one do you want to tackle first? Um, I can, I, can I make a suggestion? Sure. So we, had a, we, we looked at uh, five or six papers for today, and some of them focus more in kind of the, the broad context of the Gen Z population and what some of their broad characteristics are rather than specific managerial implications of those. Should we, um, should we look at, um, at those first, just to um, put things in a broader context? Uh, sure. Actually, my reaction was that the managerial implications are quite rich in this set, but the original research is maybe a little less than in some of our prior discussions, meaning there was, there was quite a bit of sort of literary literature summary that I saw here. And, um, and what, what, it, it gives some some broad patterns but uh and and some implications for management but not necessarily uh evidence that we can adjudicate directly yes i agree that was my impression as well but when you think about this it's not very surprising because we don't have that many gen zers in the workforce yet i think the number is roughly five percent now and it's expected to grow to about a quarter within the next couple of years but we still don't have that many of them working in organizations. So I guess it's it's more difficult to do primary research on Gen Zers in the workplace to you know give us the kind of um, of results and, and um, tangible insights that we can actually use. And yeah, by the way, I'm not, I'm can, can so I just sure. say can, can I just say when when we say primary research, we mean research that uses data that the researchers actually collected from the field, rather than right, relying sorry. on yeah on other people's opinions or something like that. Absolutely. And with that said, which paper do you want to start with? I think the California Management Review article. One thing we should preface all of this with is that what do we mean by Gen Z? So Gen Z means people born, the the dates vary somewhat, but essentially between 1995 and either 2008 or 2013 Yeah, in, in the various uh, citations. So uh, wait, before we launch into that, I also will say... I'm not sure that we don't have a better vantage point on as one can, to the degree that one can being outside of a generation on Gen Z than anyone. You and because, I as, as college well, professors. As, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. As, as college professors, I think we have seen 
these generational shifts, and we've been teaching Gen Z students for you know roughly the last five years. And I think um, it, it, it may be anecdote, but I think we have a fairly good vantage point on some of the characteristics of the of the generation. Yeah, and and I think the cohorts you and I have studied over the last few years have some similarities, but I think some obvious differences. So you're based in the, in the U.S. in New York, and I think mo- most of your students are American. Is that roughly the case? Uh, undergraduate, yes. Yeah. So my undergrads are roughly half Australian and half um, the other 50%. I would say that 90% of that 50% is is from China and then uh, a bunch of other countries. Okay. Um, so do you want to, do you want to offer the, the summary of the article? This is a article in California management review published in 2019. So a couple years older, old by Holly Schroth. And it's called, Are You Ready for Gen Z in the Workplace? My, I have to admit, my, my initial reaction for uh, after reading the paper was that this is a pretty, um, a pretty somber, somber look at um, this generation. And to a large degree, quite, quite deficit-based. Interesting. Uh, which I thought was, yeah, I thought it was. And, and kind of, um, I mean, it was raising many of the points that other papers raised as well but uh, i think they were or she was looking at them from a slightly different perspective so one of the and 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 these are backed by i think a lot of research so there's no reason to doubt that any of these things is correct one of right. the first point that she made in the paper was the lack of work experience that members of this generation has relative to previous generations millennials or the gen y and the gen x so yeah, she right, less she, than half as many of them would have worked as teenagers, I think, was the was one so, of the statistics. Yeah, I did. So she's writing in 1979, 60% of teens held a job. In 2015, 34% of, te- of teens held a job, and it's expected to drop to 25% in 2024, which is both interesting in its own right, the drop, and perhaps we can talk about some of the reasons why why we've seen it. But also in terms of the implications for people moving into organizations and how we can treat them as as new employees, because it's pretty standard, uh, straightforward rather, that when someone has already worked as a teen and then they go to college and then they get another job, they've had a job before. They, yeah, they, they know the basics of being employed, essentially, right? Being the, employed and, the and work for being there on time and. Yeah, how to how to how to operate and behave in a in a professional setting. Whereas if you've yeah. never had that before, well, there's a bit of catching up to do. Yes, I will say at RIT we are a co-op school, which means that our undergraduates are required to do a co-op experience in order to graduate. There's one or two programs across campus that don't have the co-op requirement, but in the Saunders College of Business, all of our programs do. And I am a total believer in this because it means that none of our graduates will have gotten out without a substantive work experience in the domain they are they are seeking to establish a career in and i see them often as freshmen i often assign myself the intro to information systems course because i want to get them hooked on i want i want to get them interested in information systems and then i often see them at the end in the capstone and the level of professional maturity over those couple years is dramatic and i think it's largely driven by this co-op experience where they do have to get some some real work uh experience 
So that's Absolutely. that's the first th first thing that she points out: this um, relative lack of work experience, which seems to be um, a growing phenomenon, a growing problem, rather. And there are well, and there's uh, a key byproduct that comes out of it, which is the the this article also identifies an unrealistic set of expectations. Yeah. Gen Z often comes to the workplace with unrealistic expectations about how the work is going to go, how fulfilling it's going to be, how nurturing one's colleagues are going to be and things of that nature. Yeah. And that's that's the first problem she points out. And and one of the ways she proposes to um, to tackle this problem is by coming up with a psychological contract between the employer and the employee, which is basically an unwritten set of expectations that um, is being discussed between the employee and the employer when the employee starts working in the business, which sets out the basic expectations and ba basic parameters of what their work is going to look like. So, so you know, my read on that was was that the so the psychological contract is always in existence, meaning that any any organizational life has psychological contract, a psychological contract of that nature. Um, in the same way that when we use the phrase social contract coming from Rousseau, I think that's Rousseau, right? The the premise is, is that it's just a, a core characteristic of any social environment. Yeah, but, but the point she's making but is- the argument it, here is to be explicit. Exactly. To be explicit about it. Exactly. Yeah. Because there's no much, um, I guess, implicit common denominator that can be relied on in this context when people have never worked before and, and they're not sure what to expect. And I guess that's especially the case, given another characteristic of Gen Z, which which we've seen in some of the readings, which is that it's probably one of the, if not the most cuddled generation in the history of, of the US, certainly according to research, but probably in other Western countries as well. And as an American, as an American, Sean, with, with Gen Z kids, what's what's your take on this? I'm curious. So again, <laughs> relative relative to my own experience, I, I think that would that's certainly the case. I think uh, little secret: any of you who are old, older than forty will uh, will probably have participated in a conversation like this. But even in discussions with with people in my own age cohort, we will comment on how when we were kids, you know, you would you would go home. I know, I know how that sounds. Yes, I'm just saying these are the conversations that happen. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, you'd go home, maybe you do your homework and then you get on your bike and go to your friend's house and your parents did, you know, didn't care where you were as long as you came back by a reasonable time or in time for dinner or whatever. And that definitely did not happen with a majority of this age cohort. There's, their lives were much more constrained. Uh, the phenomenon of the helicopter parent uh, definitely prevailed to a significant extent yeah. in this group. And so that's some of that that uh, aspect of coddling or what's characterized as coddling. Yeah, and I'm, I was interested to see that the language that she used here, which, by the way, I think a lot of it comes from work by Lukianov and Haidt, Jonathan Haidt, mm -hmm. and they wrote the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which is very pertinent to the conversation here, is that this generation, again, keeping in mind the, general, the nature of the generalizations we talked about before, this generation was not given the opportunity to fail as frequently as, as older generations were. And if you don't fail, then you, you don't really know how to deal with difficulties, with adversity. You're well, not sure. It's difficult to deal with negative feedback. Right, right. The, the, actually, in reviewing some of this literature, I saw so many apparent contradictions. And this was one of them, right? Was this, the, a lot of this, this generation had not been given an opportunity to fail 
And as a result, there was a, a significant anxiety about failure. I mean, one of the things we'll get to is that there is clear evidence that anxiety and depression are yeah. are experienced at much higher rate, much higher rates within this cohort. And that is certainly well developed by Jonathan Haidt's work. Jonathan Haidt at NYU. Um, he has recently been been doubling down on that argumentation, attributing it largely to the impact of social media. But this this sort of not being given the opportunity to fail means you're not given the opportunity to refine your skills, to try things out, right? And and I was struck that it's that there's a couple comments in here that that um, Gen Z tends to be a little more competitive than what are what is often called the millennials or Gen Y, that they're more cooperatively focused, whereas Gen Z is more competitive. And I was kind of struck that it's it's funny to me that they would be more competitive when they are afraid of failure, right? That they they yeah, haven't maybe, uh, sort of had that experience, but maybe one way to reconcile this is that they might enjoy competition only insofar as they're winning. As long as they're winning, yeah, right, right. Yeah. That could absolutely be the case. Yeah, but that was yeah, that was absolutely one of the the big things that jumped out at me was this the lack of opportunities to sort of develop skills in a natural way that that most of us do, which is through trial and error and a little bit of failure. I do think. Uh, from a societal perspective and from an organizational perspective, that's going to be a challenge because innovation is what almost every organization today wants as an outcome is to be able to innovate. Mm-hmm. And innovation is not, or a lack of failure or a fear of failure is not conducive to innovation. Yeah, I, w- I would say that it's a, a death blow to innovation, even because innovation, for the most part, specifically substantive and, and meaningful innovation that can actually lead to you know, a competitive advantage is oftentimes the results of multiple iterations of of failure and trying again and trial and error and trial and error and again and again and again. And if you're concerned about failing um, as an individual, or if the organization doesn't promote a culture that makes it safe to fail and celebrates failures as opportunities for learning, then you're going to be in a very tough spot. Yeah. Yeah, then you're not gonna you're not gonna see innovative results for sure. Um, a couple of the other a couple of the other characteristics that were highlighted here that I think we should we should uh, call out. Uh, I alluded to this a moment ago, but it's the most diverse in terms of uh, ethnicity and uh, national background. And I gotta say, when when I saw this, I I thought that was a I, uh, well all, all the data that that these studies present is American data. Uh, yes, I'm that's not true. sure. To what degree it's reflected in other countries? I, I I don't know that we just have the the data. So let's just keep in mind that when we make this argument, it's U.S. specific. My guess is that that it also applies to Europe, Western democracies. Yeah, I think you're probably right, given the large waves of of immigration we've seen in the last couple of decades into Europe. Um, yeah. But I'm not sure about Asia or China specifically. I I would argue that that's not the case there. I think that's probably accurate. Yes. Or India um, for that matter. In terms of measures of diversity, uh, I, I was sort of struck by one of these statistics, which is there's only a slight majority, 52% of the population between uh, of this Gen Z population are non-Hispanic whites. And that compares to somewhere north of 70% of the US population overall. So mm-hmm. again, that's that those numbers are just reflective of the US context, but uh, but it's it's pretty indicative of a of a significant change and that change is then uh, reflected in the expectations of the 
of the cohort. The cohort expects organizations and the the places where they spend their time and energy to to reflect uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and prioritize those things and and have it as a as a part of the cultural context of the organization. I think you're right. I think based on the studies we've seen, that this generation expects their organizational workforce to reflect the the diversity of the population at large. I guess I have two questions about this. First, is it realistic for organizations to recruit individuals that perfectly or even reflect well the diversity of the population? Like practically speaking, how much extra work and resources need to be poured into the recruitment process to ensure that this happens? And secondly, is it useful? Is it helpful to generate more effective organizations, more innovative organizations, more successful organizations where they make more significant contributions to society and where the workforce is actually happier and more satisfied? So I think there's probably a series of questions that one could ask there. I think one of the insights from this literature, though, is that it is relevant to to building strong, healthy organizations, if that's the expectation of an entire cohort that's coming into the organizations. Now, there are, of course, anytime you're dealing with generational dynamics, the the old people like to criticize the young people and the young people want the old people to die off and things like that. Um, but if you have an entire cohort that really does expect a focus on enhancing the diversity and the equity of treatment within the organization and the inclusiveness of all, then any organization that wants to draw in talented young people coming from that cohort had better focus on it and had better think about ways to nurture it. Now, one of the things that's quite interesting, and it comes through in some of this research, is it suggests that some of the approaches we've taken to doing that may be problematic or may be ineffective rather than problematic. Uh, before we, I think I think I know what you're trying to say here, but before we, we go there, can I just make a point? Because having read a bunch of these studies, my, I had um, a, a couple of high-level observations. One of them was that the overall sentiment, it seemed to me, of probably all of these, or most of these papers was to highlight the specific features or characteristics of Gen Z as being one thing and highlighting rightfully, by the way, the differences and some of the challenges that might come from these differences between this generation and Gen Y, X, and the um, few baby boomers that are still in the workforce, Mm -hmm. and then proposing ways for organizations on how to adapt and, and make changes, changes in order to accommodate Gen Z. I didn't see anyone who explicitly said, well, Gen Z need to catch up and kids coming into the workforce need to toughen up a bit or do some maturing up pretty quickly if they want to, if, if they want to be successful in, in their professional lives. Um, you um, know, a little bit so- of tough love. Um, I, I didn't see that from, from any of the papers. So I do think it's implicit in some of in some of this work. Um, I, I think certainly the positioning is more focused on you know this is an entire cohort of of young adults who will soon be professionals and understanding uh, their uniqueness and how to 
make the best of it is is definitely the focus. But there was there is some discussion of things like coaching, right? Like that this cohort may need some additional workplace coaching that other the previous cohorts didn't, right? There is yeah, that's so, true. Along with the Gen Y, along with the millennials, there is a very high desire for feedback within this group, sort of constant feedback, because these this group is what is often labeled digital natives. They have used digital tools, smart tools, smartphones almost since birth. Well, since birth, right? Like they they've never known a world without these tools. They expect constant connectivity and that bleeds over into the desire for constant feedback. Now that's a managerial challenge, but it also means, you know, maybe some workplace coaching to sort of set reasonable expectations about how can, to what degree can you expect feedback to be regular, to, to occur in different forms. And so there is a little bit of that, that back and forth about how uh, different generational people across generations can sort of come together and, and achieve strengths on both sides. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. And, and I thought the, the point about feedback was particularly telling in an age of um, social media where everybody expects immediate likes or reshares or whatever the platform offers once they, they post something instantly. Um, having yeah. to wait a day or a week or a quarter to get feedback from your manager might seem like a, a very long eternity. Um, so I, I, one of my, uh, one of the faculty, so I am a department chair here and one of the faculty uh, in my group came to me and commented that he had received an email from a student and five minutes later, the student was at the door knocking and saying, didn't you see my email? Five, <laughs> five minutes later, didn't you see my email? Like that, that's a situation where there has to be some communication around expectations. Um, and I am one of those who generally speaking, I don't open my email on, uh, on Saturdays and most of Sunday. Hey, um, and, and I, I think, and that's probably going to end up being the case anyway, that adjustments would need to be made on both sides. But I do want to go back to the point about diversity, equity, and inclusion um, and and go over what um, what the paper said about it, because that's one of the of the, of the places where I thought that Holly, I forget her last name, the author of the paper, used pretty um, direct language, if I can call it that. So she writes, Gen Z Trump, with 91%. Trump the- what's that? Troth. I don't know if I'm yes. pronouncing that correctly, but um, that's how I would pronounce that's her it. Last name. Yeah. last name. Yeah. So she's writing that 91% of Gen Zers believe that everyone is equal and should be treated that way. Um, diversity, equity, and inclusion are more salient than in any other generation. Um, they support free speech restrictions. Um, they're not opposed to the idea in principle of disinviting speakers or deplatforming people for expressed opinions. And they rely on their own subjective feelings of justice to decide whether a comment is unwelcome and grounds for a harassment claim. Now, this is problematic for organizations, which are professional entities that you know have people in in order to accomplish complex tasks that cannot be accomplished by any one individual. That's basically the, the essence of organizations. And obviously, organizations have always had to, to accommodate and, and and deal with people of um, different backgrounds and opinions and political orientations and all the rest of it. But what I thought was interesting here was what she wrote about um, how to manage this workforce. 
And she pretty openly criticized what many organizations do, and I think including both of our organizations, institutions as well, which is the introductions, uh, introduction of various anti-bias um, training programs. Training sessions, right? Yeah. And, and training in unconscious or implicit bias. Yeah, that's right. So the idea behind them is to make people more sensitive to how they behave and what they say in order not to offend anybody in the workplace, which is not an unreasonable thing to do on the one hand, but she's writing that it may actually lower the threshold for what is considered to be offensive and may result in employees perceiving subtle signs of prejudice, even when they don't exist. Yeah, I was struck by that. She uh, she does cite other research, but one of the statements, uh, I'm going to go ahead and quote one of the lines there, uh, where she writes, a female employee had said to me she used to like her job, but after implicit bias training, she is, quote, hypervigilant and sensitive to the smallest potential slights, close quote. So she cannot help but feel slighted every day and is thinking of quitting. Yeah. Um, so, I, have not, I have not seen research to that effect, but that's that is intriguing. Like, I think one of the questions we always have to ask is, are the are the methods that we use to try to solve problems effective? And if we recognize that unconscious and implicit bias is absolutely a, a problem in in society and organizations, Questioning whether or not the methods we have thus far adopted to try to address it may be counterproductive is is a valid inquiry. And and what she points out is that these methods can lead, like like the quote that you just used, kind of illustrates the increased levels of stress and even depression. And what she proposes instead as a more effective methodology is to have training sessions that focus on positive behaviors in the workplace and how to reinforce positive behaviors and to train employees in negotiation and conflict resolution skills um, rather than to be hypervigilant and try to catch people's um, implicit biases in everything that they say. So I, I, I thought it was yeah. uh, an unusual perspective these days and uh, kind of interesting. I think it is certainly different than what has been thus far adopted in a lot of a lot of organizations with which I'm familiar. Yeah, I did want to return to one point that you made. I agree that there are probably so. For example, openness to restrictions on free speech. I, I I think they're within organizational life in private organizations, as opposed to in society writ large. Uh, sure, there are there are grounds for certain restrictions on speech, but I tend to be I tend to weigh very heavily personally, on the side of enabling free speech. Uh, John Locke's On Liberty is a is a big one for me. But the more troubling statement there was that Gen Zers, Gen Z, members of Gen Z, have to rely on their own subjective subjective feelings of justice to decide, decide whether a comment is unwelcome and grounds for a harassment claim. Using subjective feelings to adjudicate rightness or wrongness in organizational life seems problematic to me. So let, let me play devil's advocate just to make this conversation more interesting. Sure. I would argue that, uh, you know, human beings are, we are subjective beings. And I was just teaching PhD students the other day, philosophy of science, and uh, we made the point that we don't have direct objective access to the world, right? We cannot discern objective facts in an unproblematic fashion because every individual sees the same situation in a slightly different way. 
and that's their subjective experience in the world. The only the only thing that we have direct access to is our subjective experience. So what else are we supposed to rely on in order to differentiate good from bad, right from wrong, if we don't have this subjective experience? And it's it's impossible for us to extract ourselves from this experience. Uh, right, but our perceptual capabilities are used to gather evidence. And so we need to be able to present evidence to bolster an argument. So, for example, if we say, uh, you know, I, a wrong has been done to me, then I should be expected to provide some evidence to that a, a reasonable other person would look at and and come to the same conclusion. I think that's I the key phrase there: a reasonable, a reasonable other person. Because it, yeah, it, yeah. If we have a, a social situation involve, involving multiple people where each of them would have obviously their own subjective experience of whatever happened, and these experiences don't correlate at all, then we're going to have a real problem. It's going to be impossible to accomplish anything. Sure. Sure. And I mean, there has to be some perceptual common ground at some point. Yeah, and and beyond the perceptual common ground, the, the, there needs to be a negotiation about what happened, uh, how do we feel, and what do we think about it, and what do we need to do about it. Mm -hmm. And people, oh, I guess researchers refer to this as intersubjectivity. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be an objective reality, but it needs to be um, a mutual understanding based on different people's understand uh, experiences of the world. Something that multiple people can agree upon. Yeah, right. Yeah, we right. have we have to be able to accomplish this because if if we can't, then the descent into chaos is going to be very quick. Absolutely. And, and that's a very significant challenge for organizations because business organizations, for-profit businesses, I would imagine would have pretty low levels of tolerance for behaviors that not just not contribute to the bottom line, but may um, distract people from engaging in behaviors that contribute to the bottom line. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So one of the topics that we, uh, or one of the characteristics that we've touched on already a couple, a, a little bit, and I, and I, I think it's um, highlighted in, in another piece, is this prevalence of anxiety and depression. So mental health concerns. Um, and just to keep us moving, there was another paper called Here Comes Generation Z, Millennials as Managers. This is by Gabrielova and Butchko in Business Horizons in 2021. And the, the main argument is uh, Gen Z is entering the workforce. These are going to be employees. And Gen Y, the millennials, are moving into managerial roles. And what can we learn about uh, or what can we discern with regard to how that relationship is going to go? And one of the things that does get highlighted there is that there is there is a higher prevalence of anxiety and depression in Gen Z, um, mm -hmm. and and I think that is going to have significant managerial implications in the same way that it absolutely has at the university level. I have had many more students in the last five years, four years, who are open about expressing their own psychological fatigue or need for to step away, right? To sort of, uh, to, to get a mental health day. I've had multiple students say, you know, I, I need a mental health day and things like that. So they're, they're quite open about it, but this, the rates of anxiety and depression are clearly different in this cohort. Yes. And that's, that's something else organizations need to be aware of. And I think in this case, unlike perhaps the other issues we talked about so far, this is something that 
you can't expect individuals to um to change intentionally rapidly in kind of a functional way i mean this is we're, we're talking about issues here that are probably more often than not protracted deep-seated issues um, that have been shaped over a long a long period of time and that's where well, and, and, and further i think if organizations think that they can change it in a forceful way they will set themselves up for failure i think yeah. one of the things that, that actually comes out of the same article is that the gen z tends to want again environments where they get frequent uh feedback where there is a focus on sort of inclusivity across the board within the organization where there is a a purpose we saw this with gen y as well where there's sort of a, a core purpose that they're driving toward and you know, managers can say, uh, you know, rub some dirt on it. <laughs> uh, but all that's going to happen is that they're going to have people leave their organization. So those those young adults entering as professionals who may be encountering higher rates of anxiety, if they're faced with that command and control leadership style rather than a transformational leadership style, they're going to go elsewhere. Not just go elsewhere. They're going to become, they're going to leave the organization and become bad ambassadors for that organization. Oh, sure. So I, I think we we both in agreement that doing so would be a very bad idea and that organizations just need to become more accommodating to um, um, dealing with a, a wider variety and perhaps uh, more serious emotional issues that their workforce has to or is dealing with. But that yeah. paper, um, that paper took a kind of a, a comparative angle and juxtaposed Gen Zers and and Gen Y people or mm -hmm. um, workers along different dimensions, and uh, which we'll talk about in a second. But my, uh, I thought it was a bit striking that these generations, despite the differences in terms of their proclivity or comfort with using technology nonstop and preferring Gen Z, preferring tech-mediated communication versus face-to-face -face communication. Otherwise, I thought that the primary characteristics that that paper looked at was pretty were pretty similar across both generations. So they yeah, look at intrinsic work values, and so Which they both they're, they're achievement oriented in both cases and they, development oriented. Yep, yeah, yeah, and that they do want you know that there is a, a, a strong uh, yearning for work life balance um, in both cohorts. Yeah, I, I think there are some very clear parallels and they both appreciate a transformational a leadership style that is that is more relational and um and focused on sort of nurturing development rather than just command and control yeah yeah and and they both appreciate frequent or constant feedback so there's quite a bit quite a few similarities between these um these two, two generations there was another another paper if if we want to keep this moving along by maloney at all understanding the work values of gen z business students and like the previous paper we talked about they also conducted a comparative analysis looking at gen z and gen y mm -hmm. and again one of the first thing that struck me was the the large similarities across these two cohorts yeah, and so some of the papers were setting up, you know, the, the coming interactions between these two 
generations as a, a major challenge that organizations will need to overcome because we're talking about people with two different mindsets that want different things to have different styles of communication and and, and different values. But when you look at these surveys, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just struck by how similar they are. So for instance, they did a survey that asked business students what would be some of the main characteristics of their ideal future job. Members of Gen Z rated as number one results. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So being able to see the results of their own contribution to the overall objectives of the business, which implies a strong need for having meaningful work because you want to be able what your contribution is and how how it led to how you how want to it, feel like you're making a difference. Yeah, exactly. And you want to understand and you want to understand exactly how. So that was ranked number number one by them and number two by Gen Y. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I think the parallels are or the 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 complementarities between Gen Y and Gen Z are quite significant. I will say, again, as a father of three Gen Z soon to be adults, <laughs> two adults and one soon to be adult. There is a there is a rhetorical animosity that Gen Z applies to Gen Y to the millennials. Uh, so they they don't like the comparison. They would probably be unhappy that we're saying that they seem quite similar. For the Gen Zers, the Gen Y gets a lot of ridicule and they're called chuggy. And I guess this is the nature of generational dynamics, right? Every generation sort of wants to take a little chunk out of the generation that came before them. But it's definitely a play in this group, despite very clear parallels between them. Yeah, I don't know how anecdotal your evidence is. And yeah, I'm, um, I also wonder how, to what degree, and, and maybe it's different with social media and, and constant interactions that span countries and continents and so, you know simultaneous real-time interactions with a bunch of other people that you've never met that are likely of your generation. So, But what, what I was going to ask was, I wonder how what degree of generational awareness they actually have as Gen Zers. Like, do people think of themselves in terms of being a member of that cohort and people who happen to be 10 or 15 years older as a member of a different distinct cohort to themselves? Uh, I'm not sure to what degree this is, this is correct. I think it's quite substantial, honestly. Maybe. I think people <laughs> do have a sense of their cohorts. But nonetheless, I mean, if, if we keep looking at that survey, I think the um, the parallels, like you said, are, are striking. So results is number one for Gen Z, number two for Gen Y. Promotion, number two for Gen Z, number one for Gen Y, mm-hmm. right? Which is interesting both because they're very similar, number one and number two, but also because they're very different to results, which was number one and number two respectively before. So right. results right. reflects uh, reflects uh, an an intrinsic motivator, right? Needing to have meaningful work, but promotion is something quite different. It's very extrinsic, right? Yeah. It's something that you get rewarded sure. for doing a good job, presumably. So I thought that that was kind of interesting, but nevertheless, it's very similar between Gen Z and Gen Y. And then, and then the number three, the benefits. And so uh, yeah, basically not, everything with regard to stability was almost directly parallel between. Yes, yeah, so I thought that was very interesting. So for Gen Z, number th- three, four, and five, respectively, all have to do with having a stable job. Mm-hmm. And I thought, hmm, you know, for young people to be ranking these things so highly at their age, I, I would have thought that things like, you know, having an exciting job or meeting people from different backgrounds 
or being able to travel or, you know, things yeah. like that, 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 that more experimental in nature would be higher up on the list. And yet stability. That's absolutely. gets back to this sort of but, but let me just say piece. retirement, right? People at, at 20, think about the, re- I, I didn't know what retirement was when I was 20. And these guys are thinking about retirement and they're, they're ranking yeah. it very highly. I agree. I was struck by that. I was. I thought that was quite surprising, especially given what we know about Gen Z, which is that is it is one of the most affluent generations that's ever lived, perhaps mostly in the U.S. But this is a U.S.-based survey. Yeah. So sure. th- I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that that I found quite striking in this set was that social elements were rated quite low by both generations so things like friends contacts interests within the workplace were were almost at the bottom of the stack in terms of the ratings for both sets yeah what what did Um, you make of that how did you interpret this i think one of the key the key issues that we're going to be wrestling with or that we're going to be dealing with as Gen Ys move into managerial positions and Gen Zs enter the workforce is this question of social expectations that there is evidence to suggest that sort of the emphasis on social interaction is much lower. One of the key issues, we haven't gotten to it yet, but one of the key issues of communication or one of the key issues is that communication uh, modalities are quite different. Gen Z and Gen Y, for that matter, prefer text over all other forms of communication. They, They don't they don't care for face-to-face or uh, voice-based interaction, which in a prior generation would have been the, the favorite approach. Yeah. Um, so I think social expectations and differences in social expectations are likely to be some of the biggest uh, biggest uh, points of fracture between generations in the over the next decade. So that reminds me uh, a paper that we already mentioned by Gabrielova and and Butchko, and they they acknowledge the point that you made before that people have or Gen Zers have different expectations in terms of social social interactions, and that they tend to prefer to be more individualistic, and they have a reduced need for intense and and um, ongoing social interactions with large with a large number of people. And then what they recommend to do is to for organizations to provide opportunities for these people to work in very independent settings, like small groups that are not necessarily directly supervised constantly (laughs) and to give them more autonomy uh, and more opportunities to do meaningful work that doesn't involve ongoing intense interactions with a large number, uh, with a large number of people. Yeah. I was conflicted about this because I think this, the question you raised earlier about to what degree do, do we want to change innate tendencies of a group as opposed of a you know cohort let's say in this case as opposed to adapting organizations and institutions to their proclivities i think the same question is raised here because you're right that that conclusion was well maybe give them more individualistic environments but personally my perception is that the anxiety and depression that we've highlighted already is not unrelated to the social dynamics and the, the social fragmentation or lack of uh, deep relationship building that's also being highlighted here. I think those things are connected. Now, 
uh, I would have to gather some additional evidence, but intuitively, I think there's a link there. Yeah, but I think maybe you're not wrong, but I think there's a, a lot of research that highlights the relevance of social media and online interactions and um, the increasing needed online interaction. Hold on. Increasing need for immediate gratification. Don't tell me to hold on. Uh, Young man, I'm I'm talking. (laughs) (laughs) So it it might be true that the relative social isolation that many members of Gen Z experience is one contributor to the stress and depression that they're feeling. But I, I do think that one significant element of that, which is social media and online interactions, doesn't exist in these work group idea that um that the paper mentions mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah well you know we may not be in complete agreement about this what well else? one one the, well there is one other paper that I, I would love us to just touch base on this was another one in business horizons um also from 2021 i don't know if that was a special issue the business horizons one but this is by uh pitchler coley and granites and it's called mm-hmm. ditto for gen z a framework for leveraging the uniqueness of the new generation and ditto is in all caps because it is it's an acronym for the framework that they uh, set up that characterizes what the authors argue are our key axes for for research about this cohort within organizations. So what does the acronym stand for? D is for diversity. And again, as we've no, we've already highlighted that, but the idea of being prepared to to recognize the diversity within Gen Z in the recruitment process and in our own organizational cultures. I is individualism, and it's paired with the first T, which is teamwork. So this this cohort seems to be a little more competitive than Gen Y, and they want environments in which they can compete for achievement. Uh, the second T then is technology. Again, we're talking about digital natives, so understanding their relationship with technology and their expectations with regard to technology is going to be key. And then the O is organizational support. Or sorry, organizational supports. And I think this uh, relates back to issues around mental health that we see within the cohort. So I think taken together, it, it's a pretty good framework for understanding some of the uniqueness of the group and some of the issues that managers will need to consider uh, going forward. Yes, I agree. I think there's a lot of a lot of um, a significant common denominator between this paper and others in terms of recognizing the the specific. Character, or the unique characteristics of Gen Z, right? Which um, which involve um, being technology natives, right? So they prefer online communication. Um, again, it talks about um, a generation that experiences high levels of mental health issues, a generation that largely prefers or is more well accustomed to um, working individually and that is more diverse than any other generation before it. And I, I agree that the Ditto framework is quite comprehensive in terms of it addresses all these main characteristics. I thought it was interesting what they proposed in terms of the first D, diversity, to create opportunities for intergenerational work, which I think goes beyond just acknowledging the diversity within that generation, Gen Z, but actually recommends working across generations. I guess, again, to facilitate this mutual adaptations that, that are going to be required um, in order to um, to make those teams successful. At the same time, uh, I see that as potentially entirely 
consistent with the concept of diversity and inclusivity is that we we want people to be able to feel welcomed within organizations and creating opportunities to interact with others and to learn from the life experiences of others, I think is something that that is conducive to creating a culture of inclusivity where everyone feels like they can apply their talents. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Yeah, I think I think this is a good idea. So, um, so what are our takeaways? What do you make of this? Main takeaways from the conversation today. We are dealing with uh, a new generation entering the workforce, which although currently consists of roughly 3% today is going to um, make up, I think, roughly 25% by 2025, 25% of the workforce. So I think it's quite clear, as all these papers point out, that uh, we need to be thinking about this in a conscious and explicit way. And I I am fully supportive of of doing this before before the 25% becomes a reality. And, and we're kind of not sure how to deal with the generation that, as all these papers point out, I think rightfully, has some, despite the similarities with Gen Y and Gen X, also has some unique features that set it apart from these older individuals. So thinking about these differences explicitly, I think is a very um, good idea. And I think organ- organizations needs to need to embrace these conversations sooner rather than later, uh, if they haven't already started doing that. Yep. So a couple of my takeaways, I will say, a leadership style that is transformational rather than command oriented will be critical. You know, trying to facilitate achievement rather than merely control the actions of of one's subordinates, quote unquote, uh, I think is going to be very key. Uh, a continued focus on inclusivity in the workplace and making sure that everyone does feel welcome and feels uh, able to contribute in substantive ways. But at the I same think- time, at the same time, regarding this, also putting in place mechanisms to ensure that people are able to focus and develop their ability to work in a positive fashion and to resolve conflicts and and um, disagreements in a in a positive constructive manner constructive i think, I think yeah. yeah i think that's key i i i think absolutely dealing with and actually this is another one that as college professors i think we run into is that one of the things i do recognize in this in this age cohort is that they have little sense of the escalation ladder <laughs> meaning <laughs> yeah. um Zero to 102 seconds. Zero to the president of the university. If I disagree with the professor about something, rather than go and speak to the the instructor and then possibly a department chair and then, you know work through the escalation, I immediately send an email to the president and expect five minutes later the president of the university to respond to me. Right. So working through ways of addressing conflict, I think, is going to be important for sure. And, and trying to nurture sort of uh, collective understanding of of goodwill and, and pursuing conflict resolution will be critical. And this is one of um, the things the organizations, I think, need to make explicit when they discuss the psychological contract with their employees, which is a point that we ch- touched on before. So setting yeah. very clear expectations and norms and values and, and forms of behavior that are, that are acceptable within the workplace, I, I, I think especially given what we said before which is this which is that this is the generation with the least work experience in in recent memory probably that's about the, well, end of and the highest rates of of mental health concerns yeah and so i think organizations are going to have to build resources in place to address that you know what that may be in the form of various uh counseling services but 
multiple modes of resource that people can appeal to when mental health crises do arise or issues are encountered and not simply default to a shake it off or toughen up kind of stance. I, I just think that's that's not going to fly on a go forward basis. I think that was probably the the main mo- mode of operation in business and outside of business as well, but in business, probably during the 70s and 80s, and then it kind of changed in the 90s. But I think it's probably an extra step that organizations will need to take to um, to accommodate effectively um, the Gen Zers. All right. Are we happy to conclude that part of the conversation here? I think so. It's, a, it's very interesting to me, and I'll be curious to see how things continue to develop. I will say just one final note. You said that you sort of saw a lot of the the darker, you know, the more concerned aspects of sort of challenges that Gen Z might pose. I see a lot of upside to the cohort. I think uh, this desire for purpose, uh, maybe a, a, a little return to a little bit of competitiveness, I think is a good thing. But I look at my students and in the wake of the pandemic, I have just been struck by the degree to which they are willing to engage again. Like I think they they want to actually engage with ideas and and sort of just inherent intellectual curiosity has, I think, ratcheted up in recent years. So I, I see a lot of upside in this group. Yeah. Okay. I, Not I, that I, they care what this old man says. <laughs> <laughs> but if I were to add to this to end that part of the conversation, perhaps on a positive note, another huge potential that I see in this generation is that they're used to thinking big. You know, when you and I were growing up and many other people, I imagine, our world was kind of confined to maybe our neighborhood and kids in our school and maybe yeah. our town, but not not much more beyond that. And yeah. kids today, they grow up in a completely global environment. Like we said before, they're online all the time. And online means interact, act, interacting with people from all over the world. Uh, there's no there's no other way around it. Right, and they're right. they're used to their ideas having perhaps not all the time, but sometimes having an impact beyond their immediate vicinity, physical, geographical vicinity. And we when you translate this into the business and into a business setting, this means that many kids or many members of Gen Z would be used to thinking in terms of how their ideas can have an impact beyond, you know, their their um, town or city or or state sure. or country. Yeah. So yeah. Thinking, thinking strategically, I think, might be more deeply ingrained and, and more natural to um, members of that generation than members of previous generations. Yeah. The fact that you and I have been having these converse- conversations from literally opposite sides of the globe would be unsurprising and unremarkable to them. Whereas to us, given our, you know, our memory of uh, earlier telecommunications technology, it's still, at least for me, I, I, I'm still kind of impressed by it. Uh, even the fact Although that we, I will say, oh, go ahead. I, I was going to say, even the fact that we still use the word online is mm-hmm. uh, is a right, tell right. of, of so our generation. It's a it's a bit of a retronym, right? Um, well, I will say the one last point there is I do continue to have this concern about sort of tolerance for risk and tolerance for failure. I think that's something that 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 managers will will have to try to nurture a little higher tolerance for. Uh, for risk taking and and uh, failure within this group, and also like we said before, it's not just uh, the onus is not just on the individual to become more resilient. The onus is also on the organization to foster a culture that not just accepts but actually celebrates failures, like we said before. Sure. 
Sure, absolutely. Okay, so I think it's time for a few of our favorite things. So I think <laughs> this week we were going to do favorite television programs. That's an old man way of saying it. Television <laughs> programs. Uh, TV shows. Um, TV shows. Am I supposed to go first or are you going first this time? I think I went first last time. So okay. it's, your, it's your turn to go first. So my show that I wish people would watch and it has become one of my favorite shows of all time is a show called Patriot. It is on Amazon Prime streaming, at least in the U.S. Again, in, in different countries, things are uh, mm-hmm. on different services. Um, it is very quirky. It's thought-provoking. It has some real emotional resonance. Um, it's just great. I, I love it. What's the show about? So it is about a spy um, who has to go to work at an engineering firm. And or he has to get a job at an engineering firm because it will give him uh, the ability to travel uh, to Luxembourg specifically to support some of his uh, clandestine activities. And he has no engineering background, so he he has to entirely fake it and um, to uh, address his own mental health crises. He uh, has a habit of writing and performing folk songs on the side. <laughs> is this a comedy or a drama uh it's it, i think you would call it a dark comedy it's yeah. hilarious but it is also there's plenty of drama so i think a dark comedy is what you would call it it's and i it's highly pretty, recommend it it's what? pretty recent right uh so there were only two seasons and after yeah. two seasons they canceled it and i'm i'm still heartbroken so my show is handmaid's tale which I think Margaret, many the Margaret Atwood book, right? Well, I guess based on, based on that book, the yeah. TV show. Yeah, yeah. I have and, not seen it. Which service is that? That is also on a streaming service. Which one is that? I do not know. It varies by country, like you said before. You, you haven't seen that one. I haven't. No. Interesting. I know Elizabeth Moss, right? She's in it. She's in it. And so if you haven't seen it, you should definitely check it out. I think there are four or five seasons by now. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how many, but it's, it's very successful. And it describes uh, a dystopian American society basically after the U.S. has been taken over by a, an extreme religious sect. And it's now called Gilead, which is a biblical name. Right. And it describes the... This society through the vantage point of one um, uh, one woman who was a mother and and uh, a wife. She was married and had a kid, and uh, the kid was taken away from her, and she was separated from her husband, and she was taken to be a a maid in uh, one of the the country's high commander's house. And one of the um, basic premises of the show is that for whatever reason, many women in that society were not able to bear kids. And so a small number of women who were still fertile were taken away in order to have kids for um, the high officials that governed that, that country. Forced, and it, it's forced a, fertility. Yeah. yeah. And it's a very dark show. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I did read the book uh, several years ago. So I, I will have to give the show a watch. I do notice a 
tendency in your favorite thing. Yeah, I know. They are dystopian by nature. I know. I'm your dark kind of, view of humanity is I'm revealing my my nature a little leading bit. through. <laughs> I do want to say this though. Um the reason one of the reasons I'm I thought about that show beyond it being good is that there are massive demonstrations taking place in Israel these days, which is my birth country. Because there is a an ultra and I don't think that's controversial that's just factual information what i'm saying there's an ultra religious government in the country that is trying to um introduce all sorts of laws that are gonna make the country let's just say move away from its european um, dispositions and closer to its iranian neighbor and again i don't think that's necessarily controversial what i'm saying and part of the demonstrations are small groups of women walking in different public spaces like train stations or streets or what have you dressed up as handmaids uh, as handmaids from that show with the you know the full red outfit and the the white hat um hats that cover their faces and yeah, i, I so thought that was a very very powerful manifestation of resistance to what's happening there so europe has plenty of history of theocratic uh rule in generations past but i assume what you mean is sort of the the enlightenment principles the, the moving away from sort of an enlightenment influenced uh, approach to government and toward and, li and liberal ideals of justice before the law and sure. um basic human rights yeah yeah anyway that was my show okay well good discussion really good discussion I'm, I'm glad we, we got a chance to talk again, Sean. Let's do it again sometime soon. Absolutely. Talk to you later.